Good evening, and thank you for being here tonight. And Aid uh, Mubarak to all our Muslim friends who are here with us tonight. My name is Lucia Sorbera, and I'm senior lecturer at the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures, and I'm the host of tonight's lecture. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadical people of the Yora Nation. It is upon their ancestral land that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. It is my privilege to introduce our distinguished guest tonight, Dr. Barbara De Poli from the University Kafoskari in Venice, a university I own a lot to, as it is my alma mater. Venice has a historically rooted tradition of exchange with the Arab world, and more broadly, with the Muslim-majority societies and the Middle East. Tangible signs of this long-lasting tradition are still present in its architecture, its city landscape, and its popular culture. The magnificence of Venice uh, is evidence that the intersection between different cultures, which today tends to be perceived as a threat, is an essential component of cultural growth. It is also evidence that Islam, today perceived as alien and antithetic to the so-called Western civilizations, has been an integral part of our shared past, that coexistence has been possible in the past, and it's still a good option for humanity today. Situated in one of the Italian cities, which are the symbols of the crossroads of civilizations, it is not surprising that the Kafoskaris program in Arabic language and cultures attracts students from everywhere. And we are proud to have an exchange program with this prestigious institution, a program which gave us the opportunity to host Dr. De Poli for the past three months. Dr. De Poli teaches the history of contemporary Middle East and political thought. She is the scientific coordinator of the Center for Contemporary Middle East Studies and the academic coordinator of the Master in Democracy and Human Rights in the MENA region, funded by the European Commission at Venice University. Barbara has carried out research in Morocco and other Arab countries for several years. Her main interests are the processes of westernization and secularization since the 19th century in the Middle East and North Africa, focusing on interactions between institutions, society, and religion, comparison between theory and practice, state building and national identities, democracy and authoritarianism, secularism, laicite, Arab revolts, jihadism, Freemasonry in Egypt. Among her recent publications, the books Muslim in the Third Millennium, Laicite and Secularization in the Islamic World, published in Italian in 2007, The Smile of the Crescent, Humor, Irony and Satire in the Arab Cultures, uh, published uh, in uh, Rome in Italian in 2011, and From Sultanate to Monarchy, The Cultural Formation of the Political Elite in Colonial Morocco, published in 2015. Tonight, she will be talking about doctrinal and uh, ideological roots of the Islamic State. Challenging simplistic representations and grounding on her own research, 
Barbara De Poli will illustrate the political roots of the so-called Islamic States since the Afghan War of 1979 until the Second Gulf War and the Syrian crisis in 2011. She will provide an accessible interpretation of the phenomenon, restoring its complexity and explaining its basic traits. She will discuss the ideological roots of the Islamic State, highlighting the gap between the Islamic doctrinal tradition and the principle widespread by its militants. The theme of this lecture will be further explored in a new undergraduate unit of study that the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures will be offering next year, Arab and Middle East politics. Students uh, who are interested in this unit are welcome to come talk um, to me uh, and seek information in the next days. If you want to tweet, uh, the hashtag for tonight is uh, uh, hashtag Middle East politics. And uh, the talk of Dr. De Poli, which will last about 40 minutes, will be followed by Q&A. So, so please join me in welcoming Dr. De Poli. Good evening. Uh, thank you, Lucia. Thank you very much for your presentation, and thank you for inviting me here at this uh, lecture, this talk, and uh, for inviting me in Sydney. It was uh, an excellent experience for me being here in this marvelous town. Uh, I really, really enjoyed the experience in university and uh, in uh, in the city. Um, and uh, I'm concluding my experience with this talk because I will leave next, uh, next Wednesday. So this is one of my last interventions here. Um, so um, as Lucia said, um, I will try to, we will try to understand together this evening uh, what's happening today. Uh, not just in Iraq and Syria, uh, but all around the world because we see... Uh, uh, really increasing the attacks, terrorist attacks, all, everywhere. It's in Europe and it's in, uh, uh, it's in the West in general, but in the Muslim world for, in first instance. Um, to understand what's happening today, we have to go back to the origins. Um, and we will see why. And the origin is Quran. Quran is... Uh, a uh, very important tool, uh, ideological tool, I'm not talking about religious tool in that case, uh, for jihadists in, in general. Uh, so we need to see what Quran says, first of all, about, about war. Um, and I'm talking about war, it means war for the sake of God, it's the war for God. Uh, in Quran, uh, we have about 70 verses uh, inviting to killing uh, the unbelievers. They're all Medinian, it means they are uh, revealed in the phase where uh, Muhammad uh, had uh, an important political and military role. Uh, seven verse, uh, 70 verses on 6,236, so we are talking about uh, an hundredth of, of the whole. Uh, those verses are very different in nature, in fact. There are uh, many contradictions between uh, those verses. There are that are inviting, some verses are very aggressive, um, just invite to aggressive war against unbelievers. 
uh, others are more inviting to a defensive fight against unbelievers. And two examples, just two, is uh, 929, fight those who do not believe in Allah or in the last day and do not consider unlawful what Allah and his messenger have made unlawful, etc. This is an example of aggressive uh, versus invitation to war. Or to 190, fight in the way of Allah those who fight you but do not transgress. This is an example of a defensive one, for instance. Uh, how war is called in the Quran? It's not called jihad. It's not, uh, uh, <laughs> well, never. It's not the term that's employed most of the time to define war, fisabilallah. Uh, the first term is harb. Harb means war, even today, is the term employed to define any kind of war, harb. Another is qital, uh, is fight. Again, fight fi Allah. And jihad is used more in the sense of a spiritual effort. Striving fi Allah in the sake of God, but it's a spiritual effort, a spiritual striving for God. So uh, the term jihad has most a spiritual connotation than a military one. And we find it more in the first period, in the Meccan period, uh, when Muhammad didn't have this uh, strong political and military role. But uh, apart from uh, uh, semantic, the semantic issues, uh, for sure, the prophet was a military guide for his community, and uh, uh, the war for the spread, uh, the spread of the faith, the spread of Islam, is an intrinsic part of Islamic history. But what is more important to see is behind even the Quran. The Quran is subject to countless interpretations. We just saw two examples of different verses, so we can choose one or the other, and interpreters can interpret this in very different ways. What's important for us is to understand how Muslim societies had developed the concept of war during the centuries and the concept of jihad during the centuries. So which was the main interpretation that Muslims gave to jihad? Because this is the term that was employed for, for war. For this, we must consider Sharia. No, this is Islamic law. Uh, I imagine you know that Islam doesn't have a church. There's, I'm talking about Sunni Islam in that case, of course. Uh, so there's no church that can lead uh, Muslims and that can give the righteous interpretation of, of Islam. And uh, uh, Muslims built their communities on the basis of Islamic law, on Sharia, not on really on caliphate, in fact. Was Sharia is the main uh, um, term, the main principle, uh, religious principle uh, that gave the cohesion of the Ummah for, for Muslims. The law has four sources, um, it's the Quran and Sunnah. Sunnah is the um, 
deeds, it's consistent, the deeds, the saying, and the silence of the prophets. Um, it's called the sayings of the prophets are called hadith, and hadith composed this, and this sunnah. Another source of law is qiyas, that's reasoning by analogy. And the, the last source is ijma, that's the consensus of the majority of the religious experts, of ulema or fuqaha. The law has been elaborated, moving from those sources, uh, through a long and complex, complex process of interpretation, of exegesis. Um, this is a, a very important point. Uh, we will go back to this point after. And this is the fact that this process of elaboration, this exegetical process, that both uh, a corpus of juridical interpretations, interpretation stops around 10th, 11th century. It's closed what is called the gate of Ishtihad. And Ishtihad is the effort for the interpretation, and this term has the same roots of jihad, the jihad that we know is an effort. Um, and this effort is substituted by what's called taklid, imitation repetition. It doesn't mean that nothing new never happened in the legal framework, but the pattern was established. The corpuses were established, and every interpretation had to be based as well on those corpuses. So what Sharia, what Islamic law says about jihad? Uh, let's um, define, first of all, the five pillars. Uh, they are very well known, I imagine. There is uh, uh, five um, principles that are mandatory for Muslims. They are the prayer, they are the, uh, um, um, the fasting, they are the charity, they are the shahada, first of all, the testimony of uh, faith, and the pilgrimage to Mecca. So five, five pillars, but we don't find jihad among those pillars. Jihad has never been a pillar for Muslims. It means that he never was mand and mandatory for every Muslim. It's not an individual obligation for Muslims. It's uh, an obligation for a part of the community. This is different, further line, further kifaya, but it's okay. Um, and it becomes an individual obligation just in case of attack. This is quite normal. I mean, everywhere, if you're attacked, everybody can, can fight. Um, against whom? you can fight um, jihad against pagans, polytheists, and against believers of monotheistic religions, but with different results, um, because if the unbelievers of the pagans don't convert to Islam, they must be killed. But con uh, concerning monotheists, uh, um, Christians and uh, uh, Jews, for instance, um, 
they can convert, uh, they can otherwise accept the political rule of uh, uh, the caliph or uh, the Islamic uh, government, um, keeping their religion in a subordinate condition, uh, respect Muslims, but they have saved their life. They must re just recognize the political um, authority of Muslims and subordinated, I said, uh, status in society, of course. Jihad uh, against this category of people is not, jihad is never jihad in principle. Uh, we are always talking about principle, attention, no? honest. Uh, is never a jihad for power, is never a jihad for a conquest of territories, is just the spread of Islam, and is never against Muslims, of course. Uh, jihad is subject to precise rules, very precise rules uh, about declaration of war, you must declare war three days before the attack, for instance. I'm just uh, telling you which is the major uh, ideas about this. There are differences among interpreters, of course. Um, the religious campaign must be uh, declared by a proper authority, a caliph normally, and advised by religious scholars. And then the rules in fighting, you cannot kill women, you cannot kill children, uh, you cannot kill old people, you cannot kill monks, uh, religious people. So there is uh, an ethic on this, on this sense. You cannot use poisoned weapons. Um, the majority of scholars insist on not destroying the properties, for instance, of the conquered enemies. Who, 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 for example, the me, who conserve, they maintain their religions. So, um, this is uh, the general framework. But after the phase of the Greek conquest, so up to uh, 750, jihad started to be perceived more as a defensive tool than an aggressive tool. The Greek conquest were, was finished. You know, there was a limit of the force of the empire to expand. So truce prevailed on, on war. We know very well the Mediterranean, of course, so we have the example of crusades, but most of it was a question of commerce, <laughs> of business between the north and the south, south of the Mediterranean, not south of fighting. And from the 15th century, Islam spread um, in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, and in Asia, but uh, uh, the diffusion of Islam was based on trade and not, not on war. Um, another interesting point for me is the social perception of jihad, how Muslims perceive this jihad. Uh, Muslim, Muslims considered and still consider uh, that jihad can be fought with words, with deeds, and with the sword. But the sword is the last tool that you can employ, and the majority of Muslims, of course, uh, prefer uh, to uh, use the <laughs> their personal effort. That's the main effort is the spiritual effort. Um, 
because again jihad is divided into major jihad and minor jihad. This is on the, an example uh, of, of the Prophet who was returning from a military campaign and he said to his followers, this day we have returned from the minor jihad, it was his military campaign, to the major jihad, which he said meant returning from armed battle to the peaceful battle for self-control and personal spiritual improvement and betterment. So this is how jihad has been conceived normally, and still he is conceived by Muslims um, normally. Uh, so the most important jihad became the spiritual one and not the war. Let's see another important concept uh, that's important today, nowadays, because it's very used by jihadists. This concept is takfir. Takfir refers to the practice of excommunication. When one Muslim declare another Muslim as kafir, non-believer. And this involves the killing, the killing of the unbeliever. Takfir has been used in the early stages of the history of uh, Islam. We have two examples. One is Kharijit, is a a political uh, sect that spread the beginning of Islam. They were very democratic indeed in some point of view because they considered that um, every Muslim, even an ex-slave for instance, could be imam, or we say caliph, but imam was the term they used, a guide, could guide the community, the Muslim community, every Muslim, if he had the ethical quality for it, of course, was very different from Sunni, who said that uh, he had to be uh, a member of the tribe of the Prophet, Quraysh, or she said that he has to be a descendant of, of the Prophet from his daughter Fatima and his husband, her husband Ali was the cousin of the Prophet as well. Uh, so on this point of view, yes, they were very democratic. The problem is that um, they considered kafir every Muslim who didn't agree with them. And so, <laughs> they, <laughs> yes, um, they were a problem for some centuries because uh, they used to perpetrate attacks as they are quite similar to nowadays jihadists on this point of view, uh, attacking political leaderships, uh, most of all. Um, well, they have been defeated and, uh, um, at some point, so takfir was not used anymore. And another example is uh, in, the 19th, in the 9th century, uh, a caliph who decided to apply mutazaneh, that is a special doctrine in Islam, and put on a sort of inquisition. So uh, they didn't, Muslims didn't appreciate as well this uh, way to act. Um, so um, because of those, these experiences, takfir has been discourag discouraged by ulema. Um, it has considered a source of internal discord of fitna. As I said before, there is no church. 
So if we decide that we can apply takfir, it means that every Muslim can be, okay, I have the truth. There is nobody can tell me I don't have it. I have the truth, and I say that all the others are kafir. And we understand how, how dangerous this could be. So that's why they decide not to use this principle. Um, the hinge on which, over the centuries, um, the ummah, the community, is very heterogeneous. Um, has been built was rather a famous hadith, another saying of the prophets, that a Muslim who accuses another Muslim of disbelief, he, he is the unbeliever. This is interesting because that's a way to say better not, okay? <laughs> if you, you will be. <laughs> so no, it's okay. <laughs> um, this approach uh, produced a sort of religious pact. I'm not saying that never fight in between, but they never had the war of religion that we had in Europe, for instance. Never happened something like that. And the most important is that in its expansion, Islam developed a huge variety of expressions a huge variety of expressions. They're not considered orthodox. There is no orthodox in fact in Islam. We not, cannot say exactly this. Um, this is a, a Catholic concept more. But um, there is um, schools, madrasa, where you transmit what is called literal Islam. Uh, it's based on text. And then you have popular Islam. A popular Islam is full, for instance, of magic, of... Uh, uh, rituals that are not really linked with Quran, something very, very notorious, famous is the cult of saints. So you have saints all around the world in, this Muslim, in the Muslim world. There are a lot of saints, and people are devoted to those saints. Well, uh, if we go to the doctrine, you must adore just God. All the rest is not orthodox at all, but it exists, and never anybody said, no, we cannot... Somebody sometimes, like Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Abd al-Wahhab, but they were very, very marginal, very marginal. Um, so we have Sunni, we have different Shi groups, order, Sufi orders, there are mystical uh, brotherhoods, uh, Hasid, Islam of Madrasa, the popular Islams, uh, Islam that absorbed all of the different religious expressions of the conquered, converted people. And this was, is still, but less today, uh, a richness, an enormous richness of this, of this world. Um, as I said, not everybody accepted this way. Uh, we have some minority groups, when I said they were minor, Ibn Taymiyyah, for instance, here we are in the 14th century, it was against any innovation. It was a literalist. It was moving from the text, Quran. Um, so the cult of saints cannot exist, for instance. It considered an innovation. But Ibn Taymiyyah spent a lot of time in prison, most of his life in prison. And at one moment, they took off the pen and the paper from him because he was continuing writing fatwa, saying you cannot do this, you cannot do that, you cannot. it was bothering people. Um, 
what's interesting, I mean, for instance, it said uh, he was strongly against the cult of saints. So a saint, a very peace people, when he's dead, there is a tomb of him, and people go to those tombs praying. Or, well, um, he was marginal, but people thought he was a very, very good Muslim because he was talking about the text, going to the text. Uh, when he died, uh, and he was in great in the cemetery in the, the mosque, all the people would go into his town because he was, <laughs> he was very peaceful. So no way, <laughs> no way. Um, and he was following uh, the Hambali school. Uh, um, it's a school of law, a very, very conservative, very rigid school of law. But this school of law was never applied and was not the mainstream, was not applied by Ottomans, was not applied in North Africa, in some regions and uh, in Arabia. Otherwise, people want to live, no, will not be so strict in rules. And another one is uh, um, <coughs> uh, Ibn Abd al-Wahhab. Ibn Abd al-Wahhab, we are here in the 18th century, again, was exposed from his family he was, again, very rigid. He went to the text of Ibn Taymiyyah, and he tried to convince other ulama of his vision of Islam, very reactionary vision of Islam, but they didn't listen to him. They didn't want to, to adopt. They said that he was radical, sort of radical. And uh, he had success because he found a political support by a Saud family. That's the only reason why. And again, it's very known today because uh, the Saudi family found oil <laughs> uh, in, this, in, the, in their territory. And uh, uh, with uh, uh, the petrodollars, they could spread this doctrine everywhere. So now we know it very well, but this was not the kind of doctrine that was spread in the Muslim world um, before the 20th century. Um, so, how does it come that today uh, we have so many people fighting for the Islamic State and jihadists uh, um, uh, uh, all around the Muslim world and uh, even in, uh, in the West? Uh, the change happened in the 19th century. We have to go back to the end the beginning and most of it the end of the 19th century uh, because uh, Western influence changed a lot of, uh, of things. Um, political currents, philosophical currents, has positivism, has rationalism, spread in the Islamic world, even changing the approach to religion towards Islamic knowledge. For instance, we think about school before 19th century, school's education was made in madrasas, was religious education. And religious education is not a critical education, no need to criticize the Quran, you need to learn it, to learn the exegesis, to learn the text. But, um, so learning was a kind, much more mnemonic, but uh, with the spread of modern school, we call it modern school, we have the model of uh, European school, a critical approach 
as um, a method of learning um, spread even in the in Muslim world or in the Arab world. And some intellectuals started to think to apply a more critical method to analyze Islamic tradition as Quran and the Sunnah in order to modernize Muslim societies. To contrast the West, we take the tools of the West to contrast imperialism. So they thought that Muslim societies were retarded compared to the West, um, and that the reason, one of the reasons of the, this retard was the cultural religious stagnation. So the taklid, as I said, imitation, they closed the gate of ijtihad, we don't think again, we don't interpret it really again. What they said is we have to open the gate of ijtihad again. We have to start to reinterpret the text in order to adapt. Islam to modernity, to the new exigences of society. So at the beginning, what we know as uh, Salafism, because this is what I'm talking now, uh, Salafism means to go, is the um, uh, devote ancestors, so it means to go back to sources. Um, at the beginning, Salafism, at the end of the 19th century, was a progressive movement was not a reactionary one. I'm talking about Al-Afghani, uh, Muhammad Abduh, um, that was, they were in this, in this, in this trend. But what changed this, um, this perspective were the political events that happened in the Middle East in those years. I'm talking about colonialism, the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire, the partition of the Middle East between France and England, the abolition of caliphate in 1924, all those events um, produced a counter-reaction counter against modern ideas and westernization, against modernity. So modernity was bringing nothing good to them. Uh, so if the first reformists wanted to modernize Islam, other intellectuals in the 20s of the 20th century promoted the idea of Islamized modernity. So the progressive one wanted to reduce the role of Islam, in fact, in society. The second one wanted more Islam in the society. So I don't go, I don't, if I go back to sources, is to modernize, to, sorry, Islamize modernity, to find the tools in Quran and Sunnah, to Islamize what is modern today. Um, and what's uh, interesting as well of those uh, intellectuals, the second type of intellectuals, is that mo in most cases, most of the cases, they didn't have a proper Islamic education. They were talking a lot of Islam, but without having a proper education in Islam. Um, I'm talking, for instance, about Hassan al-Banna. We will see, uh, see now. Um, here we see that the problem of the reopening of the gate of Ishtihad, this effort of interpretation of uh, the text, 
um, creates a lot of concerns. Um, Islamic institutions didn't want it. This didn't happen really in, in Islamic institutions, but outside Islamic institutions. And was much more a political discourse than a religious one. Um, but when the problem here is that uh, we are now in a society, I'm talking of the 20th century, where all Muslims, most of them, not all, most of them have, can read and write, so they have access of education, and everybody can take the Quran and read the Quran and interpret it. Um, and interpret it the way he wants. In pre-modern times, just scholars after 10 years more of study could give an opinion and interpretation of fatwa. Not everybody just reading the Quran and going. It's a very long process of education. You must know what all the other scholars said about it at the beginning of the history of Islam and after. For instance, uh, I said Hassan al-Banna. Hassan al-Banna is the founder of the Muslim Brothers in 1928. He was educated in a school that's named uh, Dar al-Ulum, and at that time was much more secularized institution, uh, mixed with some uh, religious education, but his certificate was in secular education, uh, secular schools. What he wrote is that every Muslim can be the interpreter of the law. How every Muslim? And it's interesting because this reinterpretation of Islam brings him to uh, update jihad. He takes jihad that we saw that never been a pillar, still is not a pillar of, of Islam, but he transformed jihad in the sixth pillar of Islam. He inverted the small jihad, the minor jihad, and the great jihad. He said, no, this was not, it's a spurious hadith. In reality, the major jihad is war, and the minor jihad is the spiritual effort. And for Albana, jihad was an individual obligation. So up there. So everybody has to accomplish it. Um, this is how Islam became an ideology at the service of a political project. He's a founder of uh, a political movement. Um, they are more materialistic movements on this point of view than spiritual movements, even if their practice is very rigorous. But the goal is power. It's not religion. Uh, religion, that case, is reified. So when Hassan al-Banna said he's not interested in spiritual jihad, but in war, we understand, which is the place of you know, spirit and the place of, of war. Um, after al-Banna, uh, another ideological guide, his successor in the, uh, as a guide of Muslim brothers, was Sayyid Qutb. Um, al-Banna, uh, was calling for a jihad against non-Muslims, and Israel was his main concern. Okay? But Qutb did something more. He updated takfir, anathema, against Muslims. 
of communication. So according to Kutube, unbelief is a condition of contemporary of the contemporary Islamic societies and must be eradicated through jihad. Every Muslim who does not follow Islamic principles as they are interpreted by Qutb and his reactionary view is an infidel and should be killed, starting from corrupted leaderships. leadership. So we go back to Kharijit at this point. Now we see there are some similarities. In that way, Qutb opened the door to jihadists, to the terrorist groups. They started from then in Egypt. So since then, interpretations of Islam by jihadists are more, uh, are more and more extremist and, I can say, original. At least very, very different from others' interpretation. Or from some verses, but no. Okay, um, sometimes it becomes too complicated. <laughs> so the first victims of jihadism are Muslims, not um, Westerns. Uh, I can recall the 100,000th death of the civil war in Algeria. And I want to recall an episode, something happened there, when the armed Islamic group in 1996 killed, they beheaded uh, the monks of Tiberin. And as I said before, Islamic law forbid to kill a religious person. And this uh, fact has been condemned by all the groups, even other jihadist groups around the world, Hamas or others, says, uh, no, it's not unacceptable. Um, So, what do they do uh, that's against, that's not, we cannot find traces of it in, in Sharia. For instance, killing other Muslims, jihad, six pillar. Uh, they have their own five pillars. They have five special pillars. That's aqidah, tawid, al-walawalbara, takfir, and jihad. Suicide fighting, this is forbidden in Quran. Um, the caliphate against, uh, again, uh, is some kind of pillar for them, but the way they, um, they consider the institution is very, very, is quite anomalous. We know that 2014 they founded the Islamic Caliphate uh, in Syria and Iraq, and just saying Islamic Caliphate, would well, you have a Christian Caliphate, for instance? It's very strange. It's not a traditional way to call it. Um, the jihadists are called Ahl al-Hadith, the people of the Hadith, because uh, to support their position, they use the saying of the prophets spurious things. We have plenty of Muslims know very well that most part of it is spurious. It's not. Be since it's um, useful for their goals, they use it. And their position, of course, are rejected by most of official religious institutions. Um, I'm going to close in five minutes, but very quickly, I, I'd like to describe the political framework because this is not enough, of course, to understand what's happening today. 
um, some important dates in 1967, a six-day war. Uh, this is um, the death of Nasserism, of socialism somehow, of pan-Arabism, uh, so on the secularized ideologies in their world. 1979, Soviet-Afghan War, 2003, invasion of Iraq, and 2011, Syrian civil war. Why 1979? Why the Soviet-Afghan war? Because uh, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the United States played a very important role in this war, and they began to support the Mujahideen and uh, uh, fanatic fightings, the Taliban, uh, educated to a very radical and new of, uh, of Islam. Uh, it was the most important uh, CIA operation. The name was Cyclone. Uh, they created an international network involving all Arab countries to supply Mujahideen with money, weapons, uh, and volunteers for the war. Uh, millions of dollars, and it's been calculated that together the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan spent over $40 billion to support Mujahideen. And among them, we know very well, Osama bin Laden established Al-Qaeda there. Um, the problem is that, uh, one of the problems is that with the Soviet retreat, the various military forces that were there, those fighters, um, went back to their countries. Jihad has been exported from Afghanistan in the rest of the world. Um, East Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, Chechnya, Yugoslavia, again, where there is um, a battlefield, we can find them. Muslims, of, of course, are involved in this. And every new battlefield provides Mujahideen with additional military experience to open new fronts, as it was in Iraq and was in Syria. Why is important um, the uh, invasion of Iraq of 2003? Because this destabilized the country completely. And um, Al-Qaeda has infiltrated immediately in what we can consider a civil war, de facto, was supported by Iraqi Sunni against the Shiite government. This is the result of the shared power that the uh, United States uh, established in the country. Um, ISIS, in fact, is a spin-off of uh, Al-Qaeda, which divided from Al-Qaeda in 2014 for political reasons and um, strategic disagreement. And again, 2011, the Syrian crisis facilitates ISIS, ISIS expansion in, in this country. This is important to say because... ISIS does not spread because it's strong. It spreads, it infiltrates and settles uh, in unstable and deteriorated situation. They wait for it. They theorize it. There is a book written by Abu Bakr al-Najim. The title is The Administration of Sovagery. The title is quite a fact. Um, where he says how to build an Islamic state. You must destabilize the country with attacks, or you go immediately where you find an already destabilized country, where Iraq in 2003, Libya after the fall of Gaddafi, or Syria after 2011 as well. Um, that's why Tunisia 
they are afraid. This is, for instance, a, a, a huge concern for them because it's a very fragile situation as well for Tunisians. Um, I think I can stop here and uh, we can in-depth something with your questions. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, what you say? My name is Barbara De Poli. No, I, I will come. No, Francesca De Vido. I am something in the French. <laughs> you cannot change. There are um, a lot of those mov movements. Um, the West, uh, United States founded uh, Jabhat al-Nusra for many, many years, for instance, there. But it's always Al-Qaeda. At the end of the day, does it change very much for Syrians or Iraqi if it's ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra, the way they rule? The situation is very, very liquid, is always changing, it's very difficult to understand <clears throat> what will happen next. But this changing is really not relevant in the substance of what's happening. Yeah. I didn't understand the first part of what you said. <coughs> Do you think that it, it was a uh, Western imperialism which caused turmoil uh, in the Middle East? In 2011, you mean? Yeah, and before that, like the British and the French. Of course, there is a, a huge, uh, Western has a huge um, role in it and uh, a huge uh, responsibility. It's not the only responsible of all its happening. Um, there is an internal path of it and there is an external one. We cannot understand what's happening in uh, uh, Syria and Iraq just uh, looking at, watching at the region. We, can, we ha must understand all the international interference, the regional interference from the Gulf, for instance, Turkey, and Western interference as well. So the framework is always very, very complex, and we have to put together all the pieces. It's never the responsibility of just one um, part of it, but there are a lot of them, internal and external. But it's a part of the problem for sure, for sure. We know ISIS is trying to make a lot of propaganda about demolishing the frontier, the Sykes-Picot agreements and the frontier between Iraq and Syria. So we go back again to the First World War, for instance. So, yes. Thank you. Uh, fascinating talk. Just uh, in query and your establishment that instability leads to some of these um, yeah. uh, jihadist movements coming through. Do you think the reason why it doesn't come to, into the same extent in Asia, I know you had Jamai Islamia in Indonesia, but it doesn't come to the same extent is because they're on the spice route trades and that they've been exposed to many more different cultures and there's more tolerance? Because, I mean, Indonesia has not been the most stable country over its 50 years, either as Malaysia is going through some instability movements as well. And 
uh, could get further into the next 20 years? Or do you think that those nations may be um, at risk of falling through some of these trends that have come through the Middle East and Chechnya, and etc.? You have a lot of jihadists coming from Indonesia and jihadi movements in Indonesia as well. I'm not an expert of this area of Indonesian politics. I could not really invent to say. But uh, when you have a destabilized situation, your country at risk when you have a majority of Muslims in those countries. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about uh, jihadism in the context of the Sunni Shia mm -hmm. um, conflict, which seems to have become more and more a significant driver mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Yeah, the, that's another huge problem, uh, another uh, instance, another issue on this complex situation. Um, they are paying those people in Syria and Iraq as well the fight against Saudi Arabia and Iran. That's political fights for the hegemony in the region, and uh, it's a political fight that fans his supporters even in the West, no? uh, beside one or beside, uh, or beside the other. Um, it's rooted, again, in a very, very conservative, very reactionary interpretation of Islam. No? We go back to uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab or Ibn Taymiyyah. Um, but it's, again, it's something new in this dimension. And it's uh, the fighting that started in Iraq, for instance, in 2003, because what, what once was the political majority, not numbers, but political majority that were Sunni, after the fall of Saddam Hussein, became uh, a political minority very discriminated because she got the power. But I don't think that if she decided to let Sunni participate to this power, they would have problems with it. But they really discriminated them. They suffered a lot. It was not just discrimination. It was really oppression. And that's why one of the reasons why when uh, the jihadists were Sunni came to Iraq, they were supported by the population, not all the time, but at the end of the day, yes. And a lot of Ba'athists, of general member of the Ba'athist parties, joined the leadership of ISIS. And this, again, for not religious reasons, of course, but for political reasons, that's get power again in Iraq. So we have a local tension between Sunni and Shi'i, and we have a regional one, that's Saudi Arabia and Iran, funding the respective parties. So we have um, uh, confession, confessionalization, how can I say, of this conflict as well. It didn't start like this. It was not the revolt in Syria in 2011 had nothing to do with being Sunni or being Shi'i. But maybe at the end of this war, we will see Syria splitted in different parts, with Kurds on one side, Sunni on the other side, and maybe Alawite and Christians on the other. Something completely different than what we had before. Thanks very much for the talk. Um, could you expand a little bit on the role of the Gulf states as potential spoilers or, or solutions to um, <laughs> extremism in the Middle East? <laughs> Um, 
you know that you want to know everything when somebody comes here. Uh, I'm not ex an expert on international relations. I'm trying to do my best here answering <laughs> what you want to know. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, on the Gulf or uh, international relations there. Uh, but the role, yes, will always be very important on what's happening there. We, there is um, a fight between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, for instance, uh, who's funding who? And it's never always clear who's funding who. <laughs> and it will see, uh, still go on in this way. As I said, uh, not a prophet, every, nobody can say what will happen there, but all those actors will be involved in the future of the region. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey has a very important role, and uh, the, the Kurdish question what will happen to Kurdish? We'll have another Kurdish state? Turkey. We know very well Turkey was going to uh, um, bombard, you say bombard, to bomb, yeah, to bomb uh, ISIS, but in fact they were bombing Kurds. We know very well. So, uh, <laughs> again, yes, for sure they are part of it, they will be part of it. Sorry, I missed the beginning of your talk, so I'm not. I missed the beginning of your talk, so I'm sorry if you um, covered this then. Um, I was just wondering if you could exp uh, expand more on the role of the caliphate and what the orthodox Muslim position is on the caliphate. Yeah. Um, in Australia, we've had some exposure to a group called Hizbut Turia, um, and they've you know, had some media appearance, and they, they advocate for a caliphate. So I just wondering what the orthodox position on that was. What about the caliphate, uh, what it is? And, um, it's a very strange caliphate, indeed, uh, the one that has been proclaimed by the Islamic State, uh, because uh, it's been a little bit complicated. I try to make it simple. Um, they, their sources are, for instance, uh, I said Ibn Taymiyyah, hmm? Hanbalit, uh, conservative, very reaction, uh, reaction, reactionary doctrinary. Ibn Taymiyyah is a literalist. He reads exactly what is written on the Quran. So if it says that God is uh, sitting in a throne, well, there is a God sitting on a throne. There is no metaphorical interpretation of it. And in Quran, there's nothing about power, about government of Muslims. That's the main problem of it. There's just a verse, it's 459, says you have to obey to God, the, the messenger, and the one who's the, the one who ruling you. But who are those people ruling, in which way is never described, and when Muhammad died, he never left uh, um, a successor. He never said what's going to happen on the political point of view. So um, Ibn Samiyah says we don't need a caliphate. We just need rulers, and the most important thing is to apply Sharia. So we need the rulers who apply Sharia. But in that case, ISIS uh, didn't say we don't need a caliphate, it wants one. <laughs> That's very interesting because they were not following their, their main sources, but they were following the main Sunni stream, Asherites. They hate Asherites, but in that case, it was good for them. Uh, and so they decided that the caliphate has to be, in, to be a descendant of a uh, member of the tribe of Quraysh. This is the main uh, interpretation, Sunni interpretation. And they changed the name of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was not Quraysh in his name, in Quraysh. But I just have found 
uh, jihadist sources establishing that this man is of a family, a Qurayshi family. And this was to legitimate him on the doctrinal point of view, but there is no legitimation in this. And they quote other verses of the Quran where it's written, uh, I will send uh, a Khalifa for you after other generations. That's, now I just quote in memory. That's nothing to do with power or with politics. That's been interpreted at the beginning of the history of Islam as the descendants of the jinns. Something that's nothing to do with power. But they quote it. And Zakis was a khilafa of Allah. So it's the caliph of God. But I said it was a little bit complicated. <laughs> in Islam, the caliph, in the Sunni doctrine, the caliph is not the caliph of God, is the caliph of Rasulullah, of the messenger of God, is a successor of the messenger of God, the, mes- the successor of Muhammad, not the messenger of God. But when they quote those verses, they say that is a, mes- is a khilafah of God, in fact. But this is al-Mawdudi, is another modern doctrine that who uh, interpreted the Quran and Islam in a very modern way, introducing new concepts as Ubudiyah Allah or uh, Khilafatullah. So it's very simple to criticize this, the way they uh, established this new caliphate. A caliphate must be established with the consensus of uh, the consensus of the community. It's not somebody one day goes, this is the new caliph, and since this name is Qurayshi, all the Muslims must obey. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. Uh, Muslim authorities wrote a text uh, very in detail, explaining in detail why this is not considered a caliphate. Even Al-Qaradawi, Al-Qaradawi is a very conservative, uh, is a member near to the Muslim brothers, uh, a very conservative alim, said, no way, this is not a caliphate. So that Thank you. Look, from my point of view, uh, Islam all around the world, but especially in the Middle East and in in the northern parts, say, rather than Indonesia at the moment, is becoming more and more fundamentalist. Mm. And it has been since post-colonial era and the establishment of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, most people, I don't know how much people know about the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, You should know. Um, Because I think, you know, it started off in Egypt in the 20s and... The aim of Islam is to take over the world in religion. There's no doubt about that, and it goes back to, you know, the, the original roots, the Quranic roots. And people have the idea somehow that Islam was spread. Well, I, I have a feeling the majority of people don't even know how Islam was spread, but it was spread by the sword. There was, it was. We we had the Byzantine. We had two major superpowers at the in the time of Muhammad. We had the Byzantine Empire and we had the Persian Empire and they fought each other to a standstill and got so weak that a power like Arabia was able to rise up shortly after Muhammad and Muhammad started it but but then he died and and take over. In In a matter of 100 years they spread and took over most of what was called Christendom which is all of North Africa, the Middle East you know, like uh, like Turkey. Turkey used to be 
Christian. Most of the Levant, you know, Lebanon, um, uh, Israel, what is now Israel, Egypt, Libya, all those places used to be Christian. So the, quest- the question is, would you agree that, you know, there is a move and it's funded by petrodollars to spread Islam by hook or by crook? And this notion of doing it deceptively, either by war or by what's so-called civilization jihad, which means infiltrating institutions in the West, right, like academia, like politics, etc., in order to, to give Islam the, the spin that they want it to give. And this is, I'm talking about Saudi Arabia funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the, so the question is, is that. Is, is there, do you believe in this, that there's a move uh, for okay, Islam to sort of take uh, I don't believe that there's a move. There is a move. <laughs> there is a move. We know very well that there is. What I said before is petrodollar. We have Wahhabism spread everywhere. Um, in the academia, infiltration, uh, I don't know about it. In the academia, I know in Europe and France. Sometimes the truth is that I can't take money from them. But when you take money from them for a class, I don't mean that in this class you will teach Islam as Wahhabi Islam. This doesn't happen in my knowledge anywhere. Um, they do where they can and how they can. More Wahhabism than uh, Muslim Brothers. Uh, I don't agree with Muslim Brothers and another. In the 20s, in the same time, Egypt was a very secularized country. So there were really two different trends fighting together, uh, one against the other. And until the, uh, the death of Nasser, uh, the Arab world is mostly secularized, very, very sec- Just have a look to cinema or everything. This is a very simple thing to just to have um, testify how the society was at that time. Uh, there is a speech of, uh, of, Mubarak, uh, of Mubarak of Nasser that's really, really beautiful. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, um, I met uh, the leader of Muslim Brothers and there is um, a lot of people are listening to him. Or, you saw it, hundreds, hundreds of men there. Um, and says, I had a discussion with the leader of, uh, spiritual leader of Muslim Brothers, and he said, well, now you have to oblige all women in Egypt to wear hijab. And Nasser says, all women in Egypt to wear hijab? This is a personal question. Why should I do this? I told him, you have a daughter. Your daughter is uh, a student at University of Medicine, and she doesn't wear hijab. You cannot oblige your daughter to wear hijab, and you want me to oblige all the Egyptians to do it? <laughs> it was, and uh, the crowd, people said, that he wears, he has to wear it. <laughs> so it was very, very interesting to see how society changed from the 80s, from Sadat. But what's interesting, and again we go back to the Western, why Saudi Arabia is considered moderate country from the United States, from the West. A moderate country, Saudi Arabia, but this is how it is considered. And it helps, believe me, it helps <laughs> the spread of Wahhabism. 
um, they have money and they use it for this. This is a political interest and uh, religion is never main interest. It's a political one. If you know how religion is lived in Saudi Arabia, it's a very critical way. They wait the time they go to an airplane to take off everything and to... Uh, so, it's much more political and society and control is a tool of control radical Islam. It's not a tool for spiritual elevation of nobody, but a tool of control. And yes, Wahhabism is a problem. Yes, we have media today, internet. You can find on satellites. You can find everywhere, every kind of Islam. But radical Islam, of course, has a big appeal. Because you don't have any other ideology sometimes. Even in the West, it's the same. We have foreign fighters coming in the West. Even Australia, we have some. It's quite far away. <laughs> it's quite far away, but still. Can I? Oh, yeah. Hello. Um, okay, so um, that was a great talk. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, my question is, um, so basically, um, as you know, there has been an increase um, of attacks by jihadists, and there has also been an increase in Islamophobia, um, also an increase in, of um, radicalization. Um, so what steps should um, like peace-loving Muslims um, take in particular, um, apart from condemning um, these attacks on social media platforms, um, in order to counter the radicalization in the Islamic community? Uh, there is a movement in Islamic countries now. They are starting to think uh, how the way they can uh, counteract this, uh, this radicalization, starting from education from the schools. Because at the moment they became aware that maybe teachings, Islamic teachings, I'm talking about Morocco. There's been a conference, a very important conference held in Morocco last January, if I'm not wrong, um, where they discussed ulema. In that case, where ulema coming from all the Muslim countries, discussing about it. And there is a political, very strong political interest in this. For instance, in Morocco, after a few weeks, the king publicly said that uh, we are, they are going to change the program, educational program in schools, and they will do it. If the king says that, they will do it. And uh, it's the same happening in Egypt, uh, where uh, the president Assisi uh, did the same with Al-Hazar. So we have we must start to change religious education. And the debate is a little bit something like, uh, we need more, we need less. Because are they becoming jihadists? Because they don't know enough about Islam. Or are they becoming jihadists because they know badly, it's in the bad way, and it's better not to talk about it or maybe to talk more about it. So this is the, the debate about education. Um, political tools, yes, they have. It's military political tools, control. And, um, um, yeah, that's most, most of it. But if we don't, uh, the main problem is economical problem, is a political problem, is lack of democracy, is the lack of possibilities for people. So if you don't change this at the same time, you can change education, but maybe it will be not enough because they have other sources. There's not just school. As I said, there is internet, there is satellite. So if they're not satisfied with their life, 
They can find somebody telling them how they could be satisfied with their life in another way. So the end of the ideology is in the West, but maybe somebody is looking for an ideology because we are talking about ideology, we're not talking about religion. Yes, my question actually was uh, related to to the last question, uh, and in the context of Europe, you know, and about you know the education uh, about Islamic civilizations, uh, and not not only religion, but civilizations in Europe. Uh, it seems to me that the reaction uh, of European governments, uh, and especially the French government, to the threats of jihadism, uh, it's a to take a securitarian approach uh, to, to this danger. The state of security has been renewed, and it seems that they don't have uh, put in place any other kind of uh, measure, measure to react to, to the attacks. I wonder if uh, uh, the situation is different uh, in other European countries, uh, especially in Italy, and uh, if you know, a discussion is articulated in different ways or... I don't see that, honestly. I don't see uh, any cultural changing on it. Uh, as she said as well, we have radicalization in other ways, so no migrants, uh, no more, because mi migrants are all Muslims. <laughs> That's the first thing, first for sure. So they are all terrorists, they're coming there. Uh, no, yeah. Yes, of course, they're all Muslims, and Muslims are all terrorists, so they, uh, better they stay where they are. Uh, we see how uh, European politics are really well, against any human, basic human rights, so yeah. Um, about on, on this concern. Um, you must have a security approach, but without a cultural approach or political approach as well, it would be very difficult. You know very well that in Italy, the Muslim community is discriminated. They don't have, they have the right to bid. They, there's no agreement between the Muslim community and the state. They have agreements with other religions, but not with Islam. And uh, so they can build mosques, but it's always very, very difficult. They're talking a lot about uh, changing the law in Egypt to let Christians build churches, but I think that in Italy for Muslims to build a mosque is much more difficult than this. Um, it's very difficult for me when I hear after what's happened uh, in Charlie Hebdo attacks, for instance, and France saying we must uh, defend French values. And you say to Muslims, well, you have been in Algeria since yesterday, be careful about it. I mean, which are your values on the wall? Are you sure you are always defending ideals of democracy at any time, maybe at home, but abroad, what are you doing? And everybody knows about it. I was in Saudi Arabia. I was not working for them. Don't worry about it. It was very special. I decided for me it was a very important opportunity to see inside how it was. And they were talking about this because it just happened. And I said, um, I, I don't remember who was a Saudi function, uh, important functionary. I said, uh, yes, uh, because... Uh, they have the right satire, uh, satire, satire, mm, satire uh, has the right to criticize Islam as they want. Okay, no problem. Satire, you can criticize what you want. But we'd like to know why they censor it 
a cartoon on the son of Sarkozy. So Islam, whatever you want, but when you talk about the son of Sarkozy, in that case, it doesn't go out. And, and they know it. So, so there is, yes, there is a cultural problem, a political problem, and uh, it's very difficult to find a solution because uh, uh, in Europe, we're not uh, seeing the light in the future exactly. We have a lot of problems about cohesion internal and not just here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there are no other questions, I would like to thank uh, Barbara, who has been with us. I mean, uh, apart from the lecture of today, Barbara was very generous with her time. She gave a number of seminars for our doctoral students, uh, undergraduate students, uh, and uh, Macquarie University. And uh, yes, in on behalf of the department, I would like to thank her for having been with us, uh, and we hope she will come again to visit us. Thank you, thank Barbara. You very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.